So uh, Christina Warden, uh, welcome to the journey. And so let me just uh, first start off with just saying what uh, the journey is about. And the journey is uh, a show that talks about stories of transformation, how individuals may have gone through a difficult time and transformed their lives, um, either failed forward, some kind of setback that they may have had in their life, um, or maybe they uh, transformed through uh, a change in a career or had something happen where they uh, brought their career to another level, brought their life to a different level, uh, something along that line. So, um, so welcome to the journey. And I know we've known each other now for, I'm thinking five or six years uh, and maybe yeah. even a little bit longer. How many yep. years? Seven? Seven. Mm -hmm. Seven years. Okay. And, um, and so you, uh, during your journey, we'll get into that in a little bit of uh, your own journey, but um, why don't you tell us a little bit first uh, for our listeners, what does uh, Christina do for fun? I love hanging out with my family. I love being with my kids. I love doing things with my family and enjoying time with my husband and my four children. And um, probably the best time we have is when we don't have anything to do and we can have a movie night or play a board game. Um, there's times when my husband still wrestles with my children and even the bigger ones and it gets, it gets pretty rowdy. Mm -hmm. um, and so I love to just kind of sit back and watch because I know that those days are numbered. So I really enjoy just being with my family. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't you do that? Why don't you tell us a little bit about your family? Your husband's Gary, right? Yeah. And, and you guys have been together for how long? Um, this this year, we're married 19 years together. This will be 22 years this year. Wow. All right. Cool. Congratulations. Yeah. And, then, you. and then you have a whole herd of kids. So why don't you go down the, the breakdown of the kids? <laughs> uh, I have Riley. She's 15. Okay. Um, and she's a sophomore. Uh, I have Fiona, who's 13. She's in seventh grade. And then I have Campbell, who is 10, and he's in fourth grade. And then Ember, who is five. She just turned five in February. And Ember's pretty. And not that, and not that the other ones aren't special, but Ember is a little bit special around KP because I think you had only been with us for about a year and a half or maybe yes. two years. And, yeah. uh, you, or actually a year, a year or so. Yeah, yeah. 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 And then uh, uh, announced to me that you were pregnant and <laughs> we went through that journey. <laughs> so. Yeah, she was the, she was, I think she was the first KP baby, wasn't she? I, uh, at least, at least from the standpoint at the Linden building, that's for sure. For first yeah. KP, build, uh, KP baby at the Linden building. Yeah. So, um, so with your kids that I know that they're pretty involved with sports, right? And, and you're pretty active with that. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes. So from the very beginning, um, we, so Gary and I both uh, were athletes in school. Um, and uh, we learned very early on how important athletics uh, became to us. And, and it, was, it was almost an outlet for us, but also very therapeutic for us as well. And it kept us fit and healthy and happy. And, um, and so right away, we knew we wanted to um, try to get our kids involved into sports just because of all the different reasons, all the different benefits. Um, and you know, we didn't have any idea about how it would take off. And Riley um, really sort of spearheaded the, the field for them. And she, um, she was the trailblazer. She uh, started off in gymnastics very early, 
um, we could tell that there was some gifts there for sure that she was blessed with. And then um, her and her sister wound up competing in gymnastics um, for USAG. Um, and Riley finished, she retired uh, with 12 years in and Fiona retired with, uh, I think, 10 years in. Okay, all right. And I know that just um, having my own kids involved with with the arts as well as athletics, it's uh, pretty time consuming um, and at times can be a costly uh, endeavor, but uh, I yeah. agree with you. It's, uh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's yes. very much worth it. <laughs> yes, club sports have been a blessing to us. I mean, we really saw, even even with, you know, they've, they've now stemmed into volleyball and soccer. Fiona plays soccer, Riley plays volleyball, and then Riley does track and field, and she loves pole vaulting. Um, she's done very well with that, and then Fiona uh, has also attempted track, but more or less loves volleyball and soccer, okay. and then um, Campbell, my son, is in four sports. <laughs> he actually became a black belt in his uh, dojo in karate when he was eight years old, mm. um, and so from then on, it just you know it went everywhere. And so he plays basketball, baseball, and soccer as well. Um, nice. So and now little Ember is enjoying. We had her in dance and tumbling. Um, so with everything going on right now, they're they're not doing anything but trying to work out at home. So we're we're getting as creative as we can be. Sure, sure. Well, and I I know that that is a, definitely a lot of families right now of trying to figure out how their athletes, let alone their students, you know, are able to keep up with their schoolwork and continue their learning. But how the athletes are continue to try to stay in shape and continue to um, develop their skills and um, and they don't have. Uh, direct contact with their coaches um, and sometimes they have some indirect you know um, you know through zoom or through whatever it may be but um, so before we start getting into your story a little bit um, Christina are you from the Rockford area or growing no, up or? no I'm originally born and raised in Bolingbrook Illinois oh, okay uh, and so outside of Chicago there and then shortly after that we moved around quite a bit so we moved from there to Las Vegas, and then we moved to Arizona, and then we moved to California, and then we moved to Indiana. <laughs> and you might think I'm a military brat, but that's yeah. not the case. My, yeah. um, we were nomads. No, I'm just joking. We, yeah. <laughs> my, my family liked to move around a lot. We were trying to find our home, and um, my mom and my stepdad, um, they both worked in casinos. And so I actually got the great experience of being raised right off of, an, of a reservation for a, uh, for a time in Iowa. And it was wonderful. Um, and so I, I wouldn't give that up for anything, but I, I grew up pretty much everywhere, okay. uh, all over the place. <laughs> and then I landed here, um, attempt, was going to live with my sister for a while after high school and go to NIU and I wound up going to Rockford College. Oh, okay. And when you were at Rockford, um, Rockford, it was Rockford College at the time, and it was, now it's Rockford University. University. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. What What did you study um, when you were there? Um, I studied uh, social sociology and anthropology, and then I did a pre social work emphasis. Gotcha. Um, and I I loved every minute of it. Okay. Um, and then decided from then on that I wanted to do social work. I had um, a volunteer position that I worked at. I had two actually, um, and one of them was the Big Brothers Big Sisters. So I was a big sister for several years and still 
love my little sister today, so close with her. She's wonderful. She just retired from the Navy. Um, and so she's, she's doing great. And then I also volunteered for an organization um, that's still present today, uh, uh, Rockford Sexual Assault Counseling Center. Okay. So I was a volunteer advocate for them for a long time. And, and that was a wonderful experience. So I knew I wanted to work in social work. So I stayed in the area and then I, I met a boy. Yeah. <laughs> and they end up making you stick around and things like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes. So were those, were those volunteer positions, were those something that, uh, like, how did they come about? Were they like, were they school driven or were they, how did that all come to come to be? No, honestly, it was inherent. When I was about um, 18, 19 years old, I knew that I wanted to work with people. Um, but I thought initially that I was going to do police and fire. Okay. And so when I was, um, I think I had to be 21, when I first turned um, the legal age, maybe it was 20, I can't remember now, I went and tested for the Belvedere Fire Department. And I got on the list and I was waiting for my name to be called. Um, and I was very low because I was the only woman out of uh, 75 people that showed up that day. So that was pretty interesting. And, um, and I made it, which was great. Um, but I was waiting for my name to be called, um, working a couple waitressing jobs. Um, and I found this, this, uh, this opportunity to do this volunteer work. Um, and so I wound up volunteering and, and doing it for quite a while and just falling in love with it. And someone said, you know, you could, you could do counseling, you could do social work, you could work with people in the community. And then I learned a little bit about what that was. And that's what spearheaded that for me. Gotcha. If there was one thing um, from the, your experience with the big brother, big sister, what was like one thing that you, and I know there's probably many things, but what was one thing you took away from that experience? Um, Cause they do such a great job. Um, so what was one thing you took away from that experience? You know, what I really took away was that, you know, oftentimes when you enter into a program like that, you think that you're taking the place of a parent who's absent. Um, and in my situation, she had a very present mother. Um, her mom was um, completely present in her life and loving and compassionate and giving, um, but she worked a lot. And I think she wanted her daughter to enjoy fun and have space in her life so that it always, you know, it wasn't always filled with, you know, going to and fro and having to worry about paying bills and responsibilities, but just having someone come and take her and just focus on her and be there for her. And so for me, what I learned most is that you're not always going there to provide a place or a space for someone because there's a parent who's absent. You're doing it um, simply as a bonus at times. I know I, I understand that sometimes that happens where there's an absent parent, but but in my case, it wasn't about that at all. Well, it sounds like your, your I guess, little sister in this case, right? Um, his mom was pretty wise that she was able to see that and, and be able to um, uh, be courageous enough as well as wise enough to create that, to create the opportunity for that space to be created. Mm -hmm. so yeah, she was great. She was, she was great. And I worked for a little while, a um, few years, maybe a couple of years, I worked for wave which is now remedies here in rockford um and i would watch some of the clients come in and i would think 
you know, that watching these moms parent these children in such strenuous circumstances and under dire situations. And I really, you know, I learned, I wasn't all that wise in those years, but I learned um, as I navigated life that, you know, that, that they may not always have the resources. Parents might not always have the resources, but that doesn't mean that they don't always have the love and the desire to be a parent. Um, and I really, I really saw that in some of the programs I worked in. Yeah. So if, real quickly, if you could just, uh, you know, remedies, which used to be WAVE is focused on what, what demographic did you work with at that time? Persons fleeing domestic violence. I actually worked at the time with women who were fleeing domestic violence and had the comorbidity of substance abuse issues as well. So at the time it was connected to phase, if you'll recall, yeah. and then there was a methadone clinic there as well. Yeah. Actually, there's still Gary, Gary Halbuck is the one who runs that program now. And they're still, they do still have the same setup. It's just under remedies now. Under remedies now? Okay. Yeah, I didn't yeah, know they still yeah. had the phase set up. Yeah. Yeah. They still have the setup. Um, so, so early on, you were involved with Big Brothers, Big Sisters, Rafford Sexual Assault, um, what is now remedies. So, uh, working with sexual abuse, working with domestic violence and substance abuse. Um, so, these are some definitely uh, in the trenches uh, tough situations, right? Uh, tough circumstances to work with. Um, and then as you went and got your master's for a uh, master's in social work, you got your master's where? U of I. U of I. Mm -hmm. Yep. Go alumni or, uh, Illini. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Illini. That's right. Yep. And, um, and so now did you, uh, you, you specialized in community mental health, right? Mm -hmm. I sure did. Yep. Okay. And I started while I was working, Finishing out my last year there, I began working at Rockford University, I'm saying yeah. it right now, um, yeah. because I uh, had my internship there. And then they hired me on after I graduated, which was a blessing. Okay. So I was able to work um, under a great therapist there, and I accumulated all the hours I needed in order to get my licensure. Um, and it was from Rockford College that I went on to probably one of the most profound experiences I've had in my entire life, which was working for hospice. Um, I started out as a bereavement coordinator, and then I finished off as a social worker for um, what is Heartland Hospice in Rockford, Illinois, which is a phenomenal organization. Um, and I, I absolutely believe that that was one of the most profound steps I could have made in my social work career. So, so two questions with that. First, for, for some listeners that may not fully grasp, um, because it was only until the last few years that I fully grasped hospice. I thought it was, I had a, very, a much more limited perspective about what hospice is. So maybe tell our listeners just a little bit about what hospice, uh, first tell us what hospice is and, and the totality of what hospice can do. Mm -hmm. Hospice is an agency that comes in. So typically when someone is showing signs of a declination, that would lend toward a diagnosis uh, with a prognosis of six months or less, right? So it's an end-stage diagnosis typically um, with a prognosis of six months or less. Um, individuals are able to partake of uh, a hospice care uh, and, and they can do that under the Medicare hospice benefits. So it's a virtual right by all people who contributed to our gross national product, right? So whoever worked, whoever paid taxes, whoever is, is able to, um, to partake of those services 
um, they do so on, as being a citizen of this country and, um, and working hard for that right. It's a benefit provided to them. Now, hospice comes in, um, you know, years ago, hospice used to mean, you know, something very different. Like you had to have one foot in and, and one foot out kind of thing, but that's, that's not what it means anymore. And, um, and so hospice now means that people like myself, um, I no longer work for hospice, but I teach hospice social work now. Um, but those social workers and nurses and CNAs and dietitians and uh, uh, music therapists and, and pet therapists and any physicians, anyone uh, uh, in the team can come and provide services to a patient, whether they're in their home or in another facility um, during their end of life so that they may, that patient may have a higher quality of life for the time that they have left. Um, and it's not just them, it's a, it's a total spectrum of care. So they also care for the families. Um, and that's, it's something so special. Um, and I, I know that there's, sometimes it's, it's difficult, you know, when people say, oh, you know, who did you used to work for? And I would say, oh, I worked for hospice. And you'd get the reaction, oh, you know, immediately people have this, oh, you did yeah. that. Yeah. Um, but it, it was, it was an honor, honestly, it was an honor. And it, it actually took a lot for me to leave mm -hmm. um, ultimately. Um, but it was, it was an honor still to this day, something I hold very near and dear to me. Well, you had mentioned that that was one of your uh, profound experiences. So, so maybe, maybe kind of give us just a little bit of a taste of what, what was so, uh, you, you described it well about what it is, but what was, what was one of those things that was kind of moving and profound for you? I had never witnessed someone dying before, and I was really nervous about that. And, um, and the nurses um, and social workers and chaplains and, and all of them who, who helped to train me and rear me um, really helped me through that. And when it came to my first call where I had to respond to someone and their family because this person was dying, I was so nervous driving there. But I remember when I got there, some some peace came over me as I was walk. I'll never forget it. And I was walking into the home and I actually met the nurse there um, and we walked in together and I, I really won't ever forget this. And, um, and she looked at me and she said, are you ready? And I said, yes, I'm ready. And immediately when I went in, it was, it was almost as if um, I, I was no longer affected by the idea that someone was dying. I was more profoundly affected by how can I care for this family and, and these loved ones and this person for as long as I, how can I extend the bandwidth of, of this feeling, of this notion of this person's life and, and this family's experience for them? How can I do that so that I can somehow benefit them? It was a complete self-sacrifice, whatever whatever you need. I'll do whatever it is that you need. And I found myself, you know, doing all kinds of errands for patients and their families. I found myself working beyond the hours of on-call um, 
to the extent that I learned boundaries really well, but, <laughs> but, you know, really touching base with people and wanting to make a difference in people's lives. Um, and then just getting to sit in that space with someone who, you know, isn't going to be here very long and to feel their presence in the world and to give validation to them that their words mean something, that their actions mean something. Um, you know, for the day is long, they could, you know, recite stories over and over to their families, things that they've heard a thousand times and, and get rolled eyes. But with me, I was always engaged and I wanted to learn and I didn't care how many times they told me um, or whatever it was that they wanted read to them. I would scribe letters for people who wanted to leave letters to loved ones. Um, I would try to create um, a connection with resources in the community so that people could mold their hands together. Mm -hmm. um, so it became so much more about living than it ever did or ever was about dying. Nice. Okay. All right. And I think that, I think there are such, uh, Con uh, mis misconceptions and, and these perceptions based upon our, our, you know, we have these projections about how uh, the death, we have this fear of death and, and just as I was thinking, as you were just talking, I'm thinking about how um, we celebrate when a baby's born and we have all these people come into the house, you know, come into the house, you know, not hospital typically, but house and, and all these things um, after the baby's born and we have this celebration of life, but the way that you just described the last days of someone's life is, is like you were experiencing and celebrating their life at the other end of the circle, mm -hmm. you know? Um, and that must've been obviously was a much, a really powerful, uh, a powerful opportunity. I know you went on and got your master's uh, at, at uh, U of I, and then you've worked worked at hospice, and then you've been working, did some private practice, and now you've been at KP now for uh, yes. for for seven years. Yes, and, yeah. Um, yeah. And in the midst of that, you went and got your doctorate, um, and <laughs> yeah, in all my free time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, while while Ember was, you know, I, I don't I clearly was on your hip, but uh, maybe even smaller than that, if I remember correctly. Um, and so while you have a full caseload at KP, um, you also are teaching at uh, Aurora University and you have taught at Rockford University as well. Um, uh, loved by many of your students, including my son, who, uh, <laughs> who had the opportunity to take whatever classes you were teaching over at, at, at RU. But um, one of the things I wanted to touch, I, I wanted to ask you specifically about um, was, um, similar to what you were just saying um, one I want to ask you about uh, palliative care and what what does that what does that mean and uh, maybe why don't we start there why don't you start what what is palliative care you from when someone has uh, is asking or, or now has uh, palliative care services what what does that really mean Can you palliative care and hospice care really go hand in hand um, palliative care means that they could still be receiving treatment, life-sustaining treatment. Um, and in some cases, in hospice care, they can also, I apologize, I'm getting a text. They also um, can do some, some sustaining treatments, but it's not typical. So most often, once you, once you decide on palliative care, 
um, it's comfort care at its finest. It's still the same kind of love and compassion that some compassionate care that, that someone is able to give you um, and provide to you, albeit it's, it's done sometimes in a clinic setting and at home setting. Um, it's done in a facility setting. And then the transition to hospice is very smooth. So it really kind of sets the stage for something like that. Um, but, but they really work hand in hand with one another. Okay. So right now, I mean, in the midst of uh, something that most of us have never seen before with this, the COVID-19 pandemic happening, um, I wanted to ask and have our listeners kind of get a perspective um, because some of our listeners are directly affected by what I'm going to talk about and others don't, they've only heard about it. Um, when it comes to uh, uh, someone who's either terminal or someone's who or someone who's in the hospital, um, maybe it's maybe it's via like let's say a cancer or some type of uh, long-term illness um, or, or end of life. Right now, because of the restrictions we have, um, family members aren't able to be with them. So if you can give us a little bit of kind of your perspective and insight. I mean, this, this isn't like, it's not like the family's choice and it's not like uh, the patient's choice. If you could just share maybe a little bit of insight of what that might be like, not only from the client perspective, you know, the patient's perspective, but then also from the family members and friends. Okay. You know, I, I will start with this. In my years since working as a social worker and a bereavement coordinator in hospice, I was blessed with given the opportunity to teach at Aurora University, um, also Rockford University and, and George Wingsby um, College. I um, enjoyed the experience so much and so I stayed very connected to the hospice field, um, also the oncology field. So when COVID-19 occurred and, and on the onset of that, um, we learned, I learned that um, several students' families, um, in addition to past students and clients um, and friends and family, um, were experiencing great grief being disconnected or disengaged from their loved one who was either inpatient, um, receiving palliative or hospice care, uh, end of life care, or um, they're receiving treatment cancer treatments. Um, and they've been, you know, sort of regulated to, to stay outside, to drop that person off, to only allow them to the door. Um, and, and then also when they're going in for a procedure that they're not able to accompany them, as would be in a normal kind of circumstance, under normal circumstances. Um, and so I'm, I am, you know, I'm really understanding more today of how radically different um, this this period has been for those individuals who are experiencing this um, you know something like this virus has dramatically changed and altered the pattern with which maybe we used to grieve or experience anticipatory grief and then grief you know post death and I think that um, we're going to see this change unfold. I think it's ever-changing. Um, and I think it's, it's very hard to hear how a person can be so far from a loved one knowing that they're dying or knowing that 
um, they're not able to be close to them when they're in pain or they're suffering. And the enormous amount of work our beautiful medical professionals are doing to try to keep them connected. Mm -hmm. The stories that we're hearing about loved ones dying while on FaceTime with families, mm -hmm. it just breaks my heart. So I am, I'm seeing it firsthand uh, hearing about it and then also experiencing it um, through my own clients and their families and watching what they're going through. And it's just, um, it's, it's just so hard to hear. It really is. Yeah. You know, it, it, I can't even, in both ends, both perspectives, I can't even imagine um, being able, if, if that sense of, feeling alone if like if i was in that position of dying and no one could be there um that that part and and that vac vacancy and especially if there's fear or that pain that that is happening and and i and i think maybe um of the two i i think for myself i would probably want would rather be in that position than the one of, of not being able to be there um because i think almost there'd be a greater sense of powerlessness. Um, if I was the family member uh, of someone who was uh, terminal mm -hmm. and I couldn't, it, you're already feeling powerless so that you can't do anything. Um, and, and now all these other restrictions are being placed and, and restraints. And, um, and then I'm thinking of all the, like I have a client right now that, you know, the fear and the projections of the person being um, by themselves. And so um, I, I don't know for sure which way is, which I don't think there's a worse. I think they're both not good. Um, and, it's so and, complex. It's so complex. Yeah. Yeah. And so if, you know, I know Delinda was on, you know, a couple of weeks ago and she talked a little bit about um, the grieving process in general. And in this particular case, any, any, any of your own thoughts regarding how um, the grieving uh, of of going into this, there's a there's like two different grievings, right? The grieving of someone being um, terminal and they're you know involved with palliative care or end of life care, and then obviously after the death, there's another grieving that happens as well. So maybe you can touch a little bit um, on that, um, and I, and it may be from both, both from the patient as well as the the significant others of the patient. Okay. Um, and I, I also want to make a quick point because I think you made a great point there about powerlessness. You know, for years, you think back to patients' rights, the Bill of Rights, right? And how we have, over the years, impressed upon the patient their ability to say what it is that they want, mm -hmm. their ability to have power in that moment, and the idea that they get to, to decide how they want to die. They get to decide who they want around them. They get to decide if they want to be at home or if they want to be in a hospital or if they want, you know, five people in the room or if they want 50 in the room. We have, we have coached them for years that it is, it is their right to die how they wish to die. And now with the restrictions in place, we are taking that from them. And, and, and I get it, believe me, I understand. But in, in doing so, we are removing that power 
that we fought so hard for them to receive for so long. Um, and so, or we're compromising that power. And I know that it's to, to keep others safe, but it removes their, you know, there's a sense of loss there for them in terms of, you know, the, this loss of stability, this loss of, of sense of self. And, and you think about all the things that a patient might be going through in those final moments. The idea that, that all modesty is out the window, right? So they're just sort of there um, and they're poked and they're prodded and they're, they're given medicine and, uh, you know, it's a very medical motto kind of world in, in, in the hospital, in the clinic setting. Um, or in a facility setting. And so the, the nurses and the CNAs, they, they, they likely do a wonderful job of trying to make it comfortable for them. But as good as they are, and as amazing as they, as they work at it, they're not family. And they're not the loved ones, which they so need, you know. So the grief what you're talking about in terms of two kinds of grief, when someone is approaching that time and space in their life, they can have what's called anticipatory grief. And they work through that. Uh, patients and families will both work through that. Now afterwards, this, this grief that takes place with them is strong. And um, for the family members, we're seeing now, um, only because I have experience with it now, um, this this disconnect, you know, if you think about the different rituals that families um, display after someone or even before someone dies and then after, you know, I think about my Jewish friends who are not allowed to sit Shiva, which is very important to their faith. I think about um, my Catholic friends where burial is extremely important to them. Um, the idea of visitations and celebrations and mass and, uh, you know, church outings or blessings or these things are not happening. And so the process of grief is stifled. It's stifled because they're not able to traverse, you know, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, wonderful, developed those five stages. Um, we now know that you don't typically have to navigate the stages in order, right? But the way that someone grieves is completely thrown off. It's dramatically changed because of the current circumstances. And so it is so important that we, as a, as a clinical field, we help the loved ones after they've lost their loved one. We help the family and the friends and the coworkers and, and you know, whoever solicits us. We help them as best as we can to approach their grief in a way that still connects them to the person they lost. That's so important. And then prior to that patient losing their life, to offer them and to be there for them as much as we are able to, even through this sort of medium, to be able to see them in their lives and, and acknowledge them and validate them and let them know that even though this, this external structure exists, ultimately, they're still in power. And they get to decide how they go. They get to choose. Um, and, and restoring some of that power to them 
even if it's just about a mental, right, or emotional power. You know, it's been interesting. I um, just started recently um, for an, for another project that I'm doing with some schools is started revisiting um, Ross's work regarding the five stages. Originally, death and dying, right? You know, prior to death, and then she went back and she looked at these steps not as prescriptive as you were saying, like stage one, stage two, stage three, but more of descriptive of how we just naturally go through those stages. And, and again, it's not checking them off, um, but it's describing um, responses to circumstances mm-hmm. that were also similar to the grieving process after uh, the significant other was, um, had passed on. But it was also similar to grieving divorce, loss of a career, loss of a job, um, you know, uh, not being able to graduate, um, like, you know, normal ceremony, those types of things. There's still this, this process. And I wonder if there's still the same, um, descriptive stages that we go through, but now with this going on that we may get, uh, stuck because now I can be angry at the governor or be angry at, the hospital administrator or angry at somebody and then I get stuck there for maybe a longer period of time because it's always easier to be angry than sad. It's, you know, it's easier to um, fix on somebody being the villain of why I couldn't and how this was unjust. So I, I think it is, um, I think it is exactly what we said. It's, it's, it's this opportunity that we, as Delinda said a week ago, we have to companion people through this. Yes, absolutely. And, um, and, and, and be able to walk them through and be able to feel the feelings that they're feeling um, as, as they're going through that. Um, what you're describing is it's called collateral grief. You know, this, um, it's also been um, termed as collective grief. The loss that you're talking about, and think about it, Kevin, the compounded grief. You think about someone going into the hospital and dying. You know, the, the anticipatory grief that they may have, their family might have. And then the loss that's experienced by that nurse or doctor, the loss then that's experienced by anyone else having any kind of interaction with that patient. Then to go even further to, to the, the loss that's experienced by people who are finding out this person has passed and didn't even know it because they're not as connected as they would be otherwise. So much compound grief. Now, on top of that, the spouse or the loved one or the family member might have just lost their job. Mm -hmm. Um, They might be in a situation where they're not able, they're not financially stable. Um, this, This compounded loss only makes the grief more complex, and it complicates it to the extent that they're not able to navigate the process as they might have been otherwise been able to otherwise. Yeah, no, I, 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 well, I know that with a couple of circumstances that we've worked with collectively or collaboratively um, in, in situations where that was compounded and, and, you know, it's one of the, one of the benefits of uh, technology and social media that there's been a way of, for some people stay connected, but because not everyone's involved with social media, um, you, like you said, if I don't, I may, uh, the person in the cubicle next to me is 
you know, someone may die because we're not working next to each other anymore. Um, I may not know about that, but I, I would have for sure walked through them with it if we were working side by side. Yeah. So, um, Christina, I, I, I thank you very much for being on the show and being able to share just a little bit about um, this this process. And I know that your uh, the clients that you work with and the people that you touch, uh, either as students or in the community when you're teaching or just the clients that come to your office, um, I know it is a real gift that they get to work with you um, and get to learn from you as well as uh, get to experience you walking walking with them through their um, through their hardship and pain. If there was something that you would want to share with the listeners as we, as we wrap up for this episode, um, what would you want to share? Mm. You know, I, I would say that you never estimate the, the value or the power of a moment that everything matters. You know, we, we say this a lot in social work, you know, love Brene Brown. Everybody, everybody says this now, everything matters. Every feeling matters. Every thought matters. Every single step you take matters. And I would say that it's really important during a time like this, that we just go right back to basics and really place value at every point in our life that we can because it makes it worthwhile at the end of the day and it creates a world where you don't have regrets you don't have resentment you don't get yourself all caught up in whatever is being said with social media or whatever is being said on the news your mind and your body go right back to what is most important which are what you love and knowing whom you love and being near the people that mean the most to you and that's really it Perfect. You know, if i could say one more thing there was sure, a yeah. there was a ted talk um years ago i can't remember how many years now but it was an ems um an ems guy he had done some research and he he created this um this journal that he he took on on the calls with him for a year and what he wanted to record was what people's thoughts were at the end of their lives, right? So you can imagine the different accidents he'd come upon. And I can't remember his name, but I'm sure if, if you or your listeners Google it, they'll find it. And, and he said that the number one answer, which was of course so profound, but exactly what I thought it would be, was that people said to him time and time again over the course of that year, I want my family to know that I love them. Yeah. Please tell my husband I love him. Please tell my daughter I love her. Please tell. And it was over and over and over again. And he, he said that what he realized most in doing his research was that when it got right down to it, life is about relationships. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that is one one of many things that are going to be uh, the benefit that comes out of this uh, chaos and this and this darkness is that uh, that we've been able to uh, have an opportunity to slow down, have the opportunity 
uh, in the sheltering process to to focus on those relationships um, and the value of them. And I think that uh, I think that is one of my uh, wishes and one of my hopes that when we, as we come back into a new uh, reorder of this disorder, that um, we're able to remember that and not let life get so busy that we um, somehow go back to the way it was. Mm-hmm. I agree. Christina, thank you very much uh, uh, for coming on the show, and um, and I appreciate you just being uh, part of KP and part of my life. So uh, I appreciate everything you do, and uh, you have a great night. Um, just want to thank everyone for listening. Uh, as Christina had uh, had mentioned, this is um, the end of life is difficult, anyways. But even more so right now are the complications of, of the restrictions um, of the hospitals, of the, of the clinics, of um, different aspects that may be restricting um, not only the patient, but the loved ones and the family members. Um, so as we um, are able to navigate through that time period, to be able to reach out to those individuals during that part of the journey, it is always difficult. Um, but right now with some of the constraints, it's even a little bit more so and that complicates that grieving process afterwards. Uh, Again, thank you for being with us and look forward to being with you soon.